you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, as we return to our study of the subject of Christian conduct, how we are to live, how we are to behave as Christians. And we have been looking into just how it is that we are to love God and thereby love our neighbor. We have already spent several weeks here in this text dwelling upon what the Apostle Paul is saying to us, and I trust that your life has been impacted in several ways as you have thought about the principles that we have been bringing out as the Holy Spirit has taken them and massaged them into your heart as you have heard them. By your obedience to Him, you are implementing these principles into your lives. I speak to various ones of you week to week, and you tell me things about what God has been doing through the your understanding of what Romans 12 is saying in, in ways that only bring praise to God as He works in your heart and life. And so I'm thankful for that. And so here we are once again, Romans chapter 12, and it's my desire this morning, much to the surprise probably of the congregation here at our church, that I'm going to try to finish this chapter. Someone said this morning there was a verse up on the... On the uh, screen behind me. It was from Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, and I was walking by, and we like to joke with one another, and they said, oh, we won't be in that verse for months. And I said, well, it's two and a half chapters away. I mean, obviously, how are we going to get there really fast, right? I said, but I am going to surprise you this morning. (laughs) They didn't know that I was going to say that I'm hoping that we can finish this chapter, Because the subject matter in which we are going to focus on this morning runs from verse 17 to the end of the chapter, to verse 21. And so I want to focus our attention on those verses this morning and see if we can, in fact, draw the principle out and begin then to apply it in our lives. So that's our goal. Let me begin then by reading for us just this portion of Scripture, and then we will Pray and ask God's help on our understanding as we look at what he says. Beginning in verse 17 of chapter 12, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. And dedicate our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you again for this privilege, this opportunity to once again be in your word. It's so rich. It's so life-changing if we will just put into practice what you tell us. We know that the only ones who can actually do these things are those who are true believers. And so we pray that as those who truly believe upon Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Spirit and the understanding that you give through Him, that we would understand this truth, 
and that we would think about how it is we are to implement it into our life, the various ways in which we may even now be violating it, and where we are to put those things away and begin to practice what we are exhorted here. So be with us, Lord, as we know You are. Help us in our understanding. Help to grow us as Your children. For Your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we have looked at this chapter over the past several weeks, we have been dealing with each section as we have come to them. And now we have reached this final section as Paul gives it to us here in Romans chapter 12. And we saw that it's really part of a larger section that we have been looking at beginning in verse 9. From verse 9 to 21, it's a larger section. And we are being exhorted about our behavior. Our behavior as Christians toward other Christians. Our behavior toward one another. Towards those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And by the time we arrived at verse 14, Paul had changed really a little bit of his emphasis in what he was saying from simply our behavior in general to specifically our reaction when it comes to others doing things to us. A change from just general behavior, love without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, these kinds of things that we saw in verses 9 through 13, to verse 14, whereby now we are now responding to things that happen to us. People do things to us, and this is how we are to respond. And then we get to verse 17, and the Spirit of God, through Paul, takes us back once again, if you will, to our actual practice or our behavior in general. Our behavior in general. And really, in some ways, he kind of brings both of those two realities together, the general and the specific, beginning in verse 17, because in reality it's a general behavior, but it's a reaction as well. It's a reaction as well. And so the principle that came before was that we are to bless. Remember that? Verse uh, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Bless those who do some kind of harm to you rather than do what naturally comes to us by our own natural human tendencies, and that is to curse somebody, not necessarily in words, but with deeds. We are exhorted to bless them. We are exhorted in verse 15 to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And the way that we can actually do those things is by verse 16, being of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in our own mind or prideful about our own selves, associating with the lowly. Associating with those who by implication are perceived to be lower than us or who are actually in some kind of way downtrodden and low. The fact of the matter is that none of us will in fact do those things if we are wise in our own estimation. We will not bless those who persecute us. We will not rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We will not have the same mind toward one another if we are haughty in our own mind, if we are wise in our own estimation, as Paul says, not to be like in verse 16. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't be wise in your own estimation. 
The only way that we will avoid that natural tendency is to continually seek wisdom from above. To continually have our minds renewed by the study and intake of the Word of God, as we saw in verses 1 and 2. And remember, we've said this is what Paul hinges it all on. You have to stay there. You have to have that in your heart. You have to be living that out. You have to present your body as a living, holy sacrifice. You have to be renewing your mind and not allowing yourself to be conformed and shaped by the thinking and ways of the world. And so it's with all of that in mind. It's with all of that as the the foundation, the undergirding, if you will, that Paul says in these final verses, verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, right out of the gate, we have a command. It's another command. This is a, a list of commands in from verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter. And here is just another one. And this command, we can easily see when we're supposed to do it. Never. We can see the what has to be done. Never pay back evil for evil. And the whom and to where to do it to. Anybody. Anybody. To anyone. In other words, as Paul says in verse 18, we are to be and we are to work to be at peace with all men. Now, that's an interesting conclusion, but it's not a surprising conclusion for Paul to arrive at. Why? Because that is exactly what the practical outcome ought to be for those who have wisdom from above. I want us to think about this for a moment this morning. If we have wisdom from above... If we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds, and the implication of that is renewing of our minds with the truth of God, the things that are of God, the truth from His Word, then we will have wisdom that is first pure and peaceable. Right? You say, well, how do you know that? It doesn't say that here in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. No, but this is exactly what James says in James chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Just listen to what he says. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, that's that's just a picture. If there's jealousy and there's strife going on amongst believers, you can be rest assured of this very thing. There will be disorder and there will be all kinds of other sin happening. We see this oftentimes in churches. Difficulty happens in a church and there's discord and there's people going off in this way and hating this person and disliking this person and gossiping over here and doing all these kinds of things. Why? Because there's jealousy, there's selfish ambition taking place. James goes on to say in verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. He goes on to say, then it's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, full of good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's James chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. So James is telling us that true peacemakers are not those who think that they are wise in their own estimation. 
They are not those who have puffed themselves up and think, hey, I'm the guy. But rather, they are those who seek wisdom from above. They are those who saturate themselves in the Word of God, in a right understanding of the Word of God, that they might be like Christ. Just like we read this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Be imitators of God. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, we are to live like Christ. In other words, those who have the mind of Christ are peacemakers. Those who have the mind of Christ are peacemakers. Now, the world can't do that. The unsaved world outside of here, those who do not know Jesus Christ, they cannot do that. They cannot be peacemakers. The world has no capacity to be peacemakers. Only the truly saved can do this. Why? Because this is life from above. It is life from God. This is living out the life of Christ. This is Christ living through you and I. And so here's the first exhortation with that truth in mind. Never pay back evil or for evil to anyone. Never pay it back to anyone. So here's the idea. Here's the idea. Somebody does you wrong. Somebody does you some evil thing. Somebody comes along and actually does something bad. That's what the word is here for evil. That's what evil means, kakas in the original language. It just means bad or, or something harmful, something wicked. Something that should not be done. Something that's, that's wrong. It's just not right. Something bad. What are we, what are we to do about that? What, what are we as Christians in one another in the house of God to do about that? Well, Paul gives us the negative first. We are not to pay them back. That's the negative. That's the put off. You're not to pay them back. Never. We say, don't ever use that word because you could never do that, right? Well, God says, commands, never do that. Never pay back evil for evil. And that's very practical for us because when we are the victim of someone else's vitriol, when we're the victim of someone else's hatred or someone else's sinfulness, our natural tendency is to do the exact opposite, isn't it? It's to do the exact opposite of what this verse is telling us to do. Our natural tendency is to say, no, I want my pound of flesh. No, I'm going to get back. They need to get their comeuppance. They need to get what's coming to them. It wasn't right. It was wrong. I was in the right. I didn't deserve it. Something needs to happen to them. When we're hit, we just want to hit back. So we do. We may not do it physically, but we certainly do it in our heart, and we certainly, probably, most often do it with our words. We hit back with words. We defend ourselves. Sometimes the first thing that comes out of our mouth is, but, start defending ourselves. But you, this is such a great truth. It's such a great truth. In fact, it's all over the Bible. 
It's all over the Bible. And God is so gracious to us. He is such a kind father to us. He's he's so gracious to us to meet us at our level and draw us to the higher place in our action. God, God comes down and says, here's who you are. Now here's what I need you to be. Here's what I've equipped you to be. Here's what you should be. That's what God does for us. He's such a gracious God to us in that way. Why? Because that's how God grows us. That's how God stimulates us to greater growth. He first tells us what not to do. He first gives us the put-off principle. you got to realize this is who you are. Put that off. Get rid of that. And then he tells us what to do. The put-on principle. And this is what we have here. The put-off and the put-on This is, in fact, the Apostle Paul quoting Proverbs 20, verse 22, the wisdom literature. This is Proverbs quoting, or Paul quoting from Proverbs. Do not say, I will repay evil. Do not say in your heart, I'm going to repay evil. Don't do that. But what? Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. He will save you. He'll save you. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Why? Always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. See to it. See to it that not just you, but see to it that that evil isn't being repaid by evil to anybody. Make sure good is being paid to people. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, following. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. You were called to that. This is our calling. This is part of the, this is part of the, the fundamental nature of being a Christian. We are those who don't pay back evil for evil. And so Paul draws that in as he's going through these exhortations and he brings it to its crescendo here in verse 17. We are exhorted what we are not to do. We are not to pay back evil for evil to anyone. In essence, you know what he's saying? Don't follow your natural instincts. Don't follow your natural instincts. One of the most frightening things I hear sometimes people say, I just follow my heart. And they kind of just want to make your hair stand up on the back of your neck. Don't do that. At least not your natural heart. Don't follow your humanness because that's going the wrong direction. Don't follow that. That's frightening. If you fail in this, if you fail... If you're one who pays back evil, you know what Paul's saying? Don't stop striving to be obedient to this. Just because you fail doesn't doesn't take you out of the process. We're all going to fail. Listen, when you fail, you, you ask for forgiveness. You get up and repent of that, and then you do the right thing. So don't stop striving for obedience in it because you can't rightly get to the positive. You can't rightly get to the place of the put-ons without first practicing the put-off. You can't put on before you put off. 
Some of us are wondering, okay, all right, I get it. It's a pretty simple principle, but how far do I go with that? How far do I go with never repaying evil for evil? I mean, I can overlook the little things, but some injustices, some injustices just need to be dealt with. Well, here's how I usually answer that when people ask me that question in private. Jesus gave a whole entire sermon on this in a few words in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he said, beginning in Matthew 6, verse 38 and following. Here's what he said. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's quoting Leviticus. That's quoting the Old Testament law, the the law of the land, the the law in which they were to operate in, in Israel. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, if the crime's committed, there's equal opportunity for the punishment to be given. It has to be this cross reality. Someone takes a life, they lose a life. It's the idea. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. That's a shocker. Wait a minute. The law says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Things need to be dealt with. And Jesus comes along and says, wait a minute. No, don't even resist the one who's evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other one also. If anyone wants to sue you, Jesus says, wants to take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever's going to force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Here's how Peter Peter takes those words and shows that Christ is our example. In other words, Christ practiced what he preached. Christ came along and said, look, here's how you're supposed to deal with it. And I'll show you an example of how you're supposed to deal with it in my own life. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 or chapter 2 verse 23, Christ, while being reviled, did not revile in return. Christ, while suffering, he uttered no threats. You say, all right, pastor, how am I supposed to do that? How can I actually do that? I mean, how can I practice this very injunction here, this command here as a Christian? I mean, it's so hard. People do things wrong all the time. How can I do that? We can only do it if we're following the example of Christ. Here's what it said about Christ and how he did it. How did Jesus do that? Some people say, well, he was God. He's more better than me. Listen, you have the spirit of God in you. We can do it. We have the mind of Christ. We can respond the same way by responding the same way Christ responded. How did he respond that way? How was it that he could be reviled and not revile in return? How could he suffer and utter no threats? I'll tell you how. Here's how Peter said it. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God incarnate, kept entrusting himself to his Father, knowing that his Father knew exactly what was best. I don't stand up before you this morning saying, I got that one wired, because that verse is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible, because I don't get it. It's so difficult to do. 
But the only way to be able to do it, the only way to be able to carry out exactly what verse 17 is saying is by that principle, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously. Now, someone's going to come along and say, well, well, that's just weakness. If we do that, we're just going to be doormats to everybody. Anybody and everybody who wants to step on us will step on us. We'll just be doormats. The Apostle Paul implies an emphatic no to that question, to that thought. No way. Why? Because we are to respond not just, not with just the put off, We're not going to be doormats because we're to respond not just by putting something off, by saying, okay, I'm not going to retaliate with evil, but we are to put on. Notice what verse 17 says. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. That's to put on. You see, he starts with a negative. Never do this. Now here's what you are to do. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So not only are we not to retaliate in like kind, but rather we're to do the opposite. What's that mean? What's that mean? Well, I don't know what kind of, what version of the scriptures you have in your own lap, but if you look in the cross-reference area of your Bible, the cross-reference area, typically those little things in the middle or on the edge of a page that have a lot of different verses written there, you'll notice, or you may notice, that next to verse 17 or in the part where it talks about verse 17, there's a little notation there that says, take thought of. Take thought of. And it might say L-I-T next to that. That's just a notation that says, literally, literally, this is what that says. Take thought of. So if you're reading the New American Standard Bible, like I just read, respect, the original word there has the idea of taking thought of or thinking ahead, thinking ahead, taking thought in advance, taking thought in advance. So we can think of it this way. When someone acts in an evil way against us, when someone does some kind of evil to me, My danger, the danger for me in my own humanness, the danger for me in my own natural sense, my my unsanctified sense, is to react automatically. They do something against me, there is an opposite, and probably more so reaction that I'm going to give them back. That's my natural tendency. To return retribution to them for whatever they did to me. But Paul is exhorting us as Christians, right? These are the only ones who can do this. We're the only people who can do this and act this way. He's exhorting us to not do that, to not react that way. Before you do anything, think about it. That's what he's saying. Think about it. Before you do anything, think about it. Do not allow yourself to act and to react by your fallen instincts. Don't do that. Don't follow your heart. Don't do that. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Okay, piece of cake. Simple. Well, the problem isn't just that. Instead of thinking ahead, we instinctively react. 
That's what we do. Someone says something hurtful, someone says something sinful, we retaliate, we react back, we lash out. Sometimes we use manipulation. That's one of our best tools. We use manipulation. Okay, I'm not going to talk to them for a while. I'm going to stay away from them. I'm going to give them the Christian distance. That's manipulation. That's all that is. That's a manipulation saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond as God commands me to respond because you deserve a little bit of ice coldness. You deserve a little silence. You deserve a little isolation away from the group. That's just manipulation. We just return upon them just what they gave to us. It's wrong. Sinful. Somebody physically hurts us, we naturally want them to pay. And if they're not going to pay, then guess what we do? We go to court. Go to court. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody has to pay. There are Somebody has to pay. It's not going to be me. That's not to be us as Christians. That's what was happening in the Corinthian church. Christians taking Christians to court. That's not to be as Christians. Before we do anything, we have to take thought and we have to work out our response in the context, get this, in the context and the total position of being a Christian. Let me say that again. Before we do anything, before we act and react, we have to think ahead of time in the whole context of what it means for us to be a Christian. What that means, the implications of that far and wide. And I've said this before, I think it's worth repeating again. Our life is to adorn the gospel. Our life is to be a picture of and an adornment of the gospel. Our actions as Christians have an effect upon the clarity of the gospel as it is seen in us. How we live, how we respond, how we act, what we do, says something about the gospel. It says something to others about the life-changing reality and power of God to actually change somebody. And so what is it that I'm to do? What is it that I'm to think through? Paul says, take thought of, notice verse 17, what is right in the sight of all men. Take thought of that which is right in the sight of all men. On the surface, that sounds a bit confusing. What is that? What is that? Because the world certainly thinks that things are right that aren't right. Is that what he's saying? Because the word right can be misleading. Can be misleading on the surface if we, if we start to add things that aren't true about what we're supposed to be thinking and taking thought of. The original word used here is kalas. Kalas. Why do I say that? Because kalas is a word that means good in the original language, but there's another word also for good in the original language. Agathos. There's two words there in that word group, and both of them have the idea of good. Agathos carries the idea of that which is intrinsically good. 
Something that is good by its very nature. What is good in and of itself. Goodness that is inherent in the very thing it's describing. And so when Jesus said to the man who said, good teacher to him, he said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. That's the word, agathos. Why do you call me intrinsically good? Are you recognizing that I'm God? That's what Jesus was asking him there. Because only God is intrinsically good. By what is quality good. But here, here in verse 17, Paul uses the word kalos, the other word for good. And kalos is the outward expression of an inner inherent goodness. Kalos is the fruit, if you will, of what is inherently good. In other words, Paul is saying before you do anything, once you put off evil for evil, before you do anything, you take thought of the outward expression of the inherent goodness and let that be in the sight of all men. You take thought of the very character and nature of Christ himself. And you reflect that in the sight of all men. That's what you're to reflect. That's who we're to be. Instead of retaliation, instead of hitting back, instead of yelling back, the thought of, take thought of, and provide evidence of things which are obviously good in the sight of everybody, which is the character and quality of God. This is how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves when somebody else does evil against us. In fact, here's how Paul said it to the Thessalonian believers. Here's how Paul said it. We, we studied this months and months and months ago, and probably years ago now. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Abstain from anything, whatever it is that might even appear to be evil and have nothing to do with that. So if we take that here, have nothing to do with any appearance of what might appear to be evil in your response to men who do evil to you. In other words, verse 9, abhor, abhor what is evil, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. The word good there, by the way, is agathos. Cling to that. Cling to the very inherent reality of goodness that is in God Himself. You say, okay, Pastor, I, I get it. That weight's pretty heavy to carry. What are the implications? What are the implications? Well, I can put it this way. When someone does some kind of evil against us, we must not only think of ourselves when it comes to our response. That's the implication. You can't simply think of yourself. When someone does evil against you personally in any kind of way, you cannot simply just think of yourself in your response. You must think of the effect that your response has on the whole, on others. Not just other Christians, but everyone. That's why I think Paul says here, all men. Anybody and everybody. Whatever happens to us, we have to realize that what really matters is not us personally. What really matters is not me, not my own little personal 
area, not my own little personal kingdom, not my own little personal desires and wants and whatever it is that's there, my reputation or anything else. But rather, what's important is what others think of Christianity, what others think of Christ, what others think and see of the gospel. That's what's important. I just said this before. I think it's worth repeating. The world is judging the gospel. That's what the world is doing. They're watching us, Christians, and they're judging the gospel. They're judging the whole Christian paradigm. All of it. And they're judging it by what they see in us. What they see in us. Certainly, God is going to hold them accountable for their rejection of Him. But what they see in us, what they see in us ought to be a clear reality of the gospel. What they see in the church ought to be a clear reality of the gospel. When someone does evil to me, I must put it in the context of my life as a Christian. Not my life personally necessarily between me and this person, but my life as a Christian. And I cannot act according to my fallen instincts. I cannot be concerned about me and me only. I have to honor the Christian gospel. I have to honor Christ. I have to be a, I have to remember I'm a member of the body of Christ. And I can never there, therefore act independently. I'm not an independent unit. I just can't go and do whatever I feel like I want to do because it doesn't matter. No. How G- Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let the world around us, let those who are watching us see the light shine in us in such a way that they don't go, man, those Christians are a bunch of whack jobs. They're always fighting with each other. They're never getting along with one another. There's always this rifts going on. I don't want to have anything. No, don't let them see that. Let them see Christ in us so that they glorify God. They say, man, God changes people because I knew those people before they became Christians. You see, it's about the gospel. The world is watching. We don't know. I was thinking about this recently. The book of Acts is the apostle Paul, then Saul, before his conversion, was there persecuting the church. And he's there standing at the pit, holding the coats of those who are throwing the stones upon Stephen. Saul is standing there, watching Stephen, watching how he responds. And Stephen looks up into heaven and just says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. I don't know. Maybe that was part of the seed planted in the heart of Paul that changed Paul. That God used in the heart of Paul as he's watching Stephen die. Paul says, never pay back evil or evil to anyone. Take thought of what's right in the sight of all men. That's how you respond. Some of you are saying, man, that took a long time through verse 17. We're never getting through this. (laughs) Yes, we are. And lunch, too. You'll have lunch today. Don't worry about it. We're moving on to verse 18. 
Watch this. This is incredible. Notice that Paul is still speaking about peace, right? This is about making peace. That's the idea in verse 17, really. Now he's, he's still talking about it. Notice verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, right? If possible, right? What does that mean? If possible. What Paul means is this. Live at peace with all people unless, unless they make it impossible to do so. In other words, let the impossibility be on them, not on you. In other words, there are going to be times when people act in such a way that peace with them is impossible. There's going to be times with that. Whatever it is you do, whatever overtures you make, whatever you thinking ahead or doing the right thing in the sight of all men, the person is just determined that there's going to be no peace between you two. It's just not going to happen. They will have none of it. They're going to fight no matter what. So if possible, means that there may be circumstances where it's not possible. So that's the first qualification that Paul gives, if possible. Right? There's two qualifications in this verse. One is that first one, if possible. That's the first qualification. There may be times when it's not possible. And second, notice, so far as it depends on you. That's the second qualification. In other words, we have to ensure that we are not the cause of a lack of peace. We have to ensure that we're not the cause of that lack. Don't be the cause of that lack of peace. If they don't make it impossible, if they don't make it impossible to have peace, as far as it rests in your power and your ability, then live at peace with them. But let's not be confused. Let's not be confused because Paul is not saying here, and don't write this next to your text, okay, that means peace at any price. No, no, don't write that. It's not true. This is not peace at any price. Some people's troubles as Christians is the first exhortation that Paul gives in 17, right? They have trouble paying, not paying back evil for evil. That's their, that's their weakness. That's their tendency. That's their natural response. They have trouble with that. They got to battle that all the time, right? The tendency is to lash out in retaliation at other people. That's, that's some people's issue. But on the other extreme are those who attempt peace at any price. That's the other extreme. I just can't handle conflict, so I'll do anything just to have a quieted situation. That's the idea. That's peace at any price. That can't be what Paul means here. It can't be what he means here, because as we saw in James 3, right, wisdom from above is first what? Pure, then peaceable. So wisdom from above is first pure. It's not peaceable, and that's what makes it pure. It is pure, and that's what makes it peaceable. So no purity, no peace. He said that again. No purity, no peace. And purity is truth. That's, that's the idea in James. The, when he says purity, he's talking about God's truth. It's pure. Wisdom from above is pure. It's truth. God's word is truth. Therefore, God's word is inherently pure. 
Psalm 19, verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It is pure, enlightening the eyes. So you cannot simply operate on the principle of, can't we all just get along? You can't operate on that principle. Uh, That's nice. It sounds nice. Can't we all just have a big group hug and agree to disagree? No, we can't. We can't. Why? Because truth matters. And it's about the truth. We cannot compromise truth for peace. True peace only comes through single-mindedness of truth. That's where it comes from. There was no peace. You think about Galatians chapter 2. There was no peace when Paul challenged Peter. Remember, Peter went back to the, to the Judaizers, and he, he's scared with them, and so he's saying that people have to be circumcised in order to come to know Christ and follow in the way. And Paul says, that's not how it's supposed to be. Paul said, I'm not going to allow that to continue. No, no, Peter, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not going to do that. And so he confronts Peter with the issue. He confronts Peter with the truth, knowing that that was the only path to peace. Truth. Single-mindedness on the truth. So we should never shrink from speaking the truth. But we should speak it in love, as we heard in Ephesians chapter 4. Speak truth in love to one another. It's about truth, patiently and gently. Like Jude says, we contend for the truth. We contend for it. We wrestle for the truth, not our own personal agendas. So Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Take thought of, think about, respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, may not be, but if possible, as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. Don't let yourself be the problem. And then verse 19 and 20, never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Simply put, right? I mean, it's a pretty simple principle when we understand what we've already gotten, what we've already been shown. It's pretty simple, right? Don't be personally vengeful. That's the idea. Don't be personally vengeful. That is not your place as a Christian. Vengeance is the sole prerogative of God and God alone. You say, why? Because God's vengeance is always righteous. God's judgment is always right. Our responsibility is speak truth. Speak truth. Speak truth for the glory of God in all things. Make sure that God strive for the glory of God in all that you do. We are not simply saying no vengeance at all. No, we're simply saying that we're not to seek personal vengeance. We are to seek the glory of God. Because I know what some of you are thinking, but aren't there imprecatory prayers? Aren't there prayers, someone praying that God would, in fact, take somebody out? Yes, there are that, but it's for a purpose. And the purpose is the glory and honor of God, not the glory of them personally. It's always about the glory of God. Again, this is the example of our Lord, who entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. This is the example of Jesus Christ. So if we are seeking, if we are striving for peace by living out the truth, we will not seek personal revenge. 
If we're striving for peace by simply thinking of and and responding with truth lived out, we're not going to respond to the revenge of any kind. We're going to respond like verse 20 says. For enemies hungry, we'll feed them. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Why? Because in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. So, not only are we not to do our enemy harm in any personal vindictive way, but we are to actually do good to them. Just like it's set up in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, eulogize them, speak well to God of them, ask God to bless them with the greatest of blessings that he could bestow upon anybody, particularly salvation. Do good to them. And again, here in verse 20, Paul is quoting from Proverbs, Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22. And the food and water, by the way, are just illustrative. They're just illustrations of how goodness could be done. Do good to your enemy in any way you have an opportunity to do good to them. But it's the second part of this passage that gives us trouble. Confusion, right? In doing so, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Some say that in doing good, when you do good to them, this means that it increases their punishment before God. In other words, they do something evil to you, you retaliate in the right kind of way, you think, well, you pray to God for them, and that only heaps up their judgment before God, and one day when they meet God, they'll really be crushed by that. And so, hey, it's kind of a, it's kind of a secretive vengeance. Right? If I do good to them, hey, I can really get back at them, especially before God. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know how I know that? Because it says here, or it says in Proverbs, that when you do this, you'll be rewarded by God for doing it. Well, you're certainly not going to be rewarded by God for taking vengeance, secretive or not. So it can't be that. God's not pleased with your vengeance. He's not going to reward you for that. No. This is a metaphorical statement. That's all it is. Simply saying that your kindness will be like a kind of pain to them, a kind in which brings shame. Shame. Not physical pain. Shame. They'll know a kind of burning shame, if you will. This is not, as some people try to say, well, in the ancient times, there was, this, there was this kind of weird thing that went on where people would put coals and put it on people's head. That's a bunch of nonsense. It's nonsense. Our hope is that the shame will, will bring them to the place where they see Christ and repent of their sin. That's, that's our hope. Not about us. You might even think of it like a blast of cold water in the face from your act of kindness. It's just like a shock. It's a shock. As they consider what they did to you, it's a shock to them that you would respond in such a way, kind of like Saul standing there while he's watching Stephen die. That's all this is saying. And of course, we know their remorse is no guarantee. That's not a guarantee. But our response is pleasing to the Lord. Our response to what they did to us is Christ-like, and in that there is great reward. And so, Paul sums it up in verse 21. 
Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, you want to sum up Christian behavior? You want to sum up exactly how we are to live our life? Here it is. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't let evil defeat you. Don't let evil defeat you. That's the idea. Don't let it defeat you. Evil is opposed to the gospel. Evil is antithetical to truth. Truth is inherently good. Evil is inherently bad. Evil is going to take you places you don't want to go if you were going to be evil in retaliation. Evil is going to keep you in places longer than you ever wanted to stay. And if you respond in evil, it's going to cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. That's what evil does. So don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Fight the battle for Christ. Reflect the gospel. And I pray that he would enable us through how we live to bring glory and honor to him. We're going to find this very helpful, I think, if we keep this in our minds when we read the very next phrase in chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. (laughs) Are you ready for that? It's live free or die, right? God's preparing us to think differently. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. What a privilege it is just to be able to open your word together. Lord, I trust that we understand what these words mean by what they say, that it reflects the honor and glory that you deserve, that Jesus Christ as our Savior would be honored through how we live, that even if it costs us our very life, as it cost some of the martyrs in the past, even going back to the beginning of the church, that so be it, we would entrust ourselves to you because you are the one who judges righteously. You know what is best for your gospel. You know what is best for the propagation of your church. You know what is best for our life each and every moment. So help us to respond as Christ responds to us. Help us forgive those as you in Christ have forgiven us. And may we always strive for your peace. Always standing on the truth, never compromising the truth, but in patience and gentleness and compassion, love, loving one another as you have commanded us. May the gospel be seen in us and in this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.